Robinson. And for this Bar Crawl Radio podcast, Becky and I sojourn back to the Westside Community Garden for a concert with the music duo Brooklyn Kumana, Jorge Glem on the Venezuelan Cuatro, and Sam Ryder on the accordion. I am Rebecca McCain, and before we hear from tonight's musical performers, Alan and I have the delightful pleasure of visiting with Gail Brewer. If you are an Upper West Sider, Gail needs no introduction, but let's do one anyway. We were unable to find out where Gail was born and grew up, but we will ask. Gail obtained her undergraduate degrees from Vermont's Bennington College in 1973 and Columbia University in 1997, and earned a Master of Public Administration from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Early on, Gail worked for the Lieutenant Governor of New York, Mary Ann Krupsack. Then for several years, Gail ran Ruth Messenger's City Council staff. In the 1990s, she worked in David Dinkins' administration, and then for public advocate Mark Green. She served on the Upper West Side Community Board 7, and then was the Upper West Side City Council representative until 2013, Manhattan Borough President until 2021, and is now back as the City Council Rep for the Upper West Side. And we want to welcome Gail Brewer to Bar Crawl Radio and to the West Side Community Garden. Before we get to know Gail Brewer better, Becky and I want to thank Randa Kirschbaum for organizing these West Side Community Garden concerts for the past many years. The summer concerts will continue, but Randa is moving on. We want to thank Randa Kirschbaum for her tireless work in organizing these amazing outdoor music concerts for her neighbors. Yeah, you know what we're talking about here. I know, I'm talking about the garden. What are you talking no, about? No, no. Well, oh, well, they're talking about you. I'm talking about the garden. All right, well, you talk about what you talk about. We'll ask your questions. and That's fine. And you see, we'll talk because, about whatever you want to talk because about. Because we, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, we're just happy to have you, Gail Brewer, here yeah. on, Bar, on Bar Crow Radio. And, and we, we do have an agenda here. If we get to that agenda, that'd be great. It doesn't matter, though. Uh, otherwise, we can, uh, we can move in other directions. Whatever you wish. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's whatever we wish. I think <laughs> I'm happy to be here. It's a beautiful night. It, it is, is a gorgeous it night. Is. And uh, first off, we want to thank you for helping to secure the Cultural Immigration Initiative Grant for tonight's performance. And, and we want to welcome Cal Snyder. Gail Brewer's husband to to this conversation also. It's so so nice that we have you two together. Thank you. I I, I think this is a this is a scoop. We don't we, we don't we don't get you two together. I see you together, but we don't actually talk. So, Gail, your work is certainly known and appreciated by the Upper West Side neighbors that are gathering here at the Garden. And so, rather than focusing on local issues, which we could if you want to, um, we wanted to get to know more about you. Um, I, I, I looked you up, and I couldn't find much about who you are. And I, Good. I, That's I, the idea. I, I, yeah, well, you, you reveal as much as you want, but we're going to ask you about, about your life. Uh, and I heard you don't like to talk about yourself, but tonight we'd like to try to get you to do that. So where, did, where were you born, and where did you grow up? I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, along with de Blasio and Bloomberg <laughs> and Corey Johnson. There's four of us who are from Boston. Does everything have to go back to politics? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and um, I grew up in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a little bit on the North Shore. So I'm basically from Boston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, are you a uh, Boston um, 
a fan? Are you a Reds fan? No, I never went to a game in Boston, actually. Yeah. I've only been to the Yankees and the Mets here. I never, my family did, we didn't go to baseball. So right, right. I wasn't, a, I, I, I love Fenway Park, but I never went to a game there. Yeah, yeah, and and and, and you, I assume you're not going to tell us whether you're a Mets or Yankee fan. I'm a Yankee fan. Okay, Gail, we love you. I love Gail. the Yankees. Gail. I really like the Yankees. We've been a Yankee family our whole life. My and, and you can take the D train there, and you get right there. That's I right. Love it. It's I love. easy. And being on the D train, going to Yankee game, it's fantastic. Right. Everybody's in their jerseys. Everybody's and excited. so excited. Mm. Yes. I, I I love the old stadium better. Oh, much more. Yeah. This. This this one is. It's uh, so cold. This one. It doesn't have any. Doesn't have any heart. Yeah. It's, it's like a big sort of. I'll tell you what happened when I invited Gail to go to a Yankee game back in back in the early '80s. They were kind of in their rise and prime then. Again, you know, from the doldrums of the '70s. It was a Sunday. Then as now, it was the only day of the week you can get Gail to do anything that's not related to work. We got on a D train and went up there. And Gail ins insisted on bringing along the, the, a full copy of the New York Sunday New York Times, <laughs> which it, in those days was not, you know, like now we are home delivered and it comes in two parts and you know it comes part on okay. saturday and part someone of with a wheelbarrow comes into yeah the exactly in those days it was a we bought it on the newsstand and you got the whole shlemiel i always sat in the bleachers and it was only a dollar 75 i think or 275 so we, we we went out there and we sat down and the gal opened the new york times <laughs> Do you remember this, Gail? Yeah, and that was the last I saw of her all day. <laughs> <laughs> you can do two things at once. <laughs> sure. Uh, no, you can't watch the game with the paper in front of you. Yes, you can. Well, she hole. didn't. I wouldn't say it was that bad, but <laughs> you know. I love the New York Times on Sunday. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, it's still it's a great. And uh, you and you have time to read it. I it's, love the yes, I read the New York Times Daily News and the Post, and. Um, sometimes a journal oh wow I love the newspapers I teach in Hunter and when you uh, open you know the class the first class for the students have you ever read a newspaper Wow. 2023 zero zero yeah and we're talking about paper paper yes right. I'm talking zero yeah but they don't even read it on the on they read phones. it no they read it sometimes online but I'm talking they have op-ed never heard of letters to the editor never heard of yeah. Yeah. Never news analysis. Wow. Never heard of. I I, I, rem I I have stopped reading the the Times paper, and it's just on my iPad. But you're right. It's that experience of like going to the back of the front section and seeing the op eds. And getting the newsprint on your fingers. Yeah, and the smell of it. And but the thing is, the students don't read the whole. They they, they only read what they want to read. Right. So that means that they're going to skip a story on Iran or whatever. Right. True. Yeah. So anyway, I think they at least should know what an op-ed is. They should know what an editorial is. They should know what letters the editor are. But then now my students say no. Okay. <laughs> where do you where do you teach? Hunter, Hunter, Hunter. College. At Hunter, right? Okay. And uh, what do you teach? Po public policy. Okay. All right. But turn the newspapers. There you, you go. You do that every semester? I do it every spring semester. Good for you. I well, love the students. You're they're, so you're so they're busy. They're fabulous. They're fabulous. All right, all right. We need to get back to this. Okay. Yeah. So all right. Here's the next question. Here you go. Do you have siblings? I have a sister, younger sister, and a younger brother, and they both live in Boston with their families. And what do they do? 
My brother owns a business, uh, climbing walls, nautical. And my sister has taught at, she taught at Tufts for a while and she does environmental policy. And you know, she's, um, they all have kids and grown up, grown wow. up kids. And you keep them informed? Uh, sort of. They oh, don't really? really know anything about New York politics. Uh-huh. So. And, and then when you get together, you don't talk about it? And we don't get together too often. I don't leave Manhattan. Well, we get um, together at Thanksgiving and sometimes, sometimes at Christmas. Sometimes, sometimes. And well, your, your family is liberal? Yes. My, I would say that my parents were, uh, were, were liberal, yes. I would yes. Say so, yeah. Did they have anything to do with you going into public service, your parents? Not really. My father was a lawyer up in Boston. And when uh, we were small, he did, he, he did run and win for the local, I don't know what it was called, selectmen they called in up there. But it was, you know, just town, town things. He didn't do that very long. So what, what got you started on, on what? Well, I'm a, I got thrown out of brownies. What is that? Brownies. Oh, you know, oh the brownies. Like, oh, like I Girl was Scouts. a brownie, yeah. Yeah, like Girl Scouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For talking back to people. Ah. Oh. And then I almost got thrown out of high school for the same thing. So I, I'm a rabble rouser. Okay. So do, do, you, do you remember what was that bothered you with your brownie leader? I couldn't stand her. Mrs. Robel. <laughs> Mrs. Robel, I <laughs> hope you're listening. She's on record today. She was horrible. Oh. I don't remember what she did, but she was horrible. And you, ah. let, you let her know. I let her know. I, she probably did something to somebody, and I didn't like it. I don't remember the details but I was I was a talker back at an early age yeah. well if you didn't go into public service do you think what do you think you might have done I don't know I mean something with nonprofit probably in the nonprofit sector yeah 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 yeah, yeah. but right. you, you did learn something about retail politics from your father we went to the dump yeah we used to give out leaflets at the dump because that's where everybody went on the Saturday. town dump the everyone town had dump. to go there on Saturday to get rid of their little trash because there was no pickup. So. And what were on the leaflets? A vote for Bill Brewer. Okay. <laughs> wow! 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 There you go. All right. Now, 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 this is all. This is all coming together now. Oh. Now, now we know. That's it. You know, I, that's I, it. I said, I said, I asked people. I said, do you, do you know anything about Gail Brewer? And they said, No. We, well, let's find out. Let's find out what's, what's going on. How did? How did? Oh, I'm taking your question. Yeah, I know. He always steals my questions. I'm sure he does. Nice. Yeah. Horrible. So, okay. Where did you meet your husband, Cal Snyder? He can tell you better, but he was uh, looking at blueprints for a building on 80th Street in Amsterdam where the developer was going to tear it down and build a new one. And it had a lot of rent-stabilized residents in it. And so he will tell us more articulately, but basically he read the blueprints and saw that the developer was lying. And so as a, based on that, the community board turned down the application. Okay. And I was working at that point for Ruth Messinger in the city council. And I said, who's this guy who could read a blueprint and beat a developer? So what do you remember, Cal? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's basically what happened. How was it that you were able to read a blueprint? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I grew up in a, in a family of structural iron workers in Chicago built steel buildings and uh, so it was my it was my uh, my grandmother's brother my great uncle uh, who uh, started this iron working business back at the turn of the 19th century uh, by the time I, I came along and uh, I was born in 46 
their sons and, and everybody eventually went into the business in one way or another. We was all union, of course. Local one, bridge structural and ornamental iron workers. Um, oh, you worked on bridges. Well, I didn't work on bridges. Yeah. Bridge work is a highly specialized. Yeah, uh, we just did a program on Brooklyn Bridge. On oh, the restoration. Yeah. And Robling and uh, oh, how Roebling, they're re- no. refitting it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you learned how to read a blueprint. I mean, their approach was to sort of throw you into the fire. You just had to learn, um, and very fast. The subplot of Gail's story is that uh, John Zuccotti, who was been a deputy mayor under Koch, had uh, left government and gone into de- real estate development. He had already succeeded in tearing down uh, All Angels Church on West End Avenue uh, and putting up a hideous apartment house there. Which they're trying to do on the church on 86th Street. Over my dead body. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, interesting, the, this, the parallels The here. story of the West Side never changes. And... You know, they moved the the architectural remnants of of All Angels Church to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where they still are on exhibit. It was such a magnificent place that he threw into a dumpster. Then he had his sights set on a... It was 80th in Amsterdam, right? 80th in Amsterdam. There was a a really handsome, you know, 1880s uh, red brick uh, uh, apartment so what did you find in the pr- blueprints that was wrong? Yes, the community board had to approve the project because it required a zoning amendment. He wanted to build bigger and taller on a site that didn't allow for it. So they brought their so-called blueprints to the to uh, the community board. Um, community planning, board planning and zoning committee. I was not on the board, but the, we had a block association. I was not alone, and we'd rally together to try to stop this. Upzoning of basically it was the upzoning of Amsterdam Avenue to turn it into First Avenue or Second Avenue. Uh, they brought their so-called blueprints and and the board allowed us to have a copy of the of the so-called plans. There were just a few pages. The public so-called public amenity spaces were just big blank empty spaces in which they had printed post office. So that was just fake. And and the the best part was that the housing quality code, as it was called, its primary emphasis was on public safety. And as an example of it, their lawyer, Paul Selver, got up before the Planning and Zoning Committee. He's a very smart guy, Paul Selver. He's still around. And still practicing. Uh, And explained that, uh, that... when you came into the lobby of a housing quality building of, they, of the kind they wanted to build, there weren't going to be any cul-de-sacs off the lobby, like for mail or anything, like, where a, a mugger might lurk, right? We were still living under the shadow of the 70s, and everyone was concerned about public safety. Um, so when we looked at the plans, we noticed that they had been designed to have cul-de-sacs that came off of the lobby. You got them. And when we went back to the board, they asked Paul about this. And he said, don't worry, we'll be taking care of that with mirrors. We'll be putting mirrors up so people can see around the corner. And we said, well, you see, Paul, that's the problem. Your project is all smoke and mirrors. <laughs> I heard that, that was the end of the project. I heard, yeah. I, I, I heard that coming. Yeah. I heard that coming. Well, <laughs> that, he hadn't heard it coming. 
and and you were at that board meeting and your eyes met. I don't remember all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, my eyes might have met. I don't remember any of that. But we did. We got together, and that's that's how it happened. Okay. All right. We've okay. we've we've come we've you come around. It. Right. We. You also mentioned back in the seventies, um, you and Cal were living on West Eighty Second Street. I hear. I think it was more like the 80s, but yes, in the okay, 80s, that's, 82nd that's Street. Well, Gail was there in I was the 70s. There, yeah. so okay, all right, all right. Um, and Gail, you were president of the New York chapter of the National Women's Political Caucus mm-hmm. yeah. at the time, founded by Bella Abzug, Shirley Chisholm, Gloria Steinem, and others. Did you get to meet any of them? Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, I talked to Gloria pretty often. She's still alive. She's 89. Wow. I was very close to Bella Abzug. We went to... You know, thousands of meetings together, and we even went to, I was with her in Beijing for the Women's Conference in 94. Yes, I was very close, and I'm very close to her daughters today. Wow. Very close how, to the how did, you, how did you get that position? You, you know, I was uh, very active in the local chapter in Manhattan, and I always, I mean, I come into politics through the women's movement. So, I, you know, we supported Equal Rights Amendment and pro-choice and goodness knows what else for... A very long time and help women get elected around the state. Boy, we, yeah. Many, many conferences. No, I was very, and I met Shirley Chisholm a few times also. She wasn't as active, right. but Bella and um, Shirley and um, Gloria and many, many other, all the whole Ms. magazine staff, many, many people involved. These are really powerful shapers of this yes. democracy yes, yes. Uh, in ways we should be going. Uh, but unfortunately, we're not. Did, did, what did you? Is there a lesson you got from them, or something you learned? Or well, Bella was. Um, she was a, a strong person. She would yell at you, and then be a, a more support than anybody else you could think of. I mean, she was brilliant. She came up with ideas. Don't forget, she not only did she fight the Vietnam War and fight for women and fight for people of color, the black community in particular. And then after she finished uh, Congress and, you know, she ran um, for mayor and lost, as you know, um, she then started an international women's organization. So she literally knew. When I went to Beijing, I'll never forget this. Literally, I mean, there were, I don't know, many thousand women there from around the country, around the world. She knew them all. And to see her, her legs were bothering her at that point, so she had a lot of assistance. But every single person there, from all these different countries, it was quite a conference, um, knew her, and I think became a leader in their country because of her. She did training through her organization. She was a unique person. I I can't even describe her. Hunter College, Columbia Law School. Uh, Martin was her husband. We always loved him, too. Lived at 2 Fifth Avenue and two daughters. We need leaders like that, yeah, and she, like you. She, and Noelle, she, she was a real leader. I mean, I, I do the best I can, but she was a real leader. And, and still to this day, it, we all follow her uh, guidance. What did she teach you? Well, she was speak up, talk up. Also, she was brilliant. It sounds like you already knew how to do that. Well, she, she had a, I mean, people, the cadre of people who followed her was huge. Um, nothing feared her. She was fearless. And she's hard to describe. And Maggie Payton, who worked with me for a while, uh, drove her around. Um, Harold Holzer, who's at the Roosevelt House now, written 49 books on Lincoln, um, was her press secretary. I mean, she was tough. You know, there was no kidding around with her. But what I think what you learn from her is it's possible to make change. Oh. 
Um, in the 70s and 80s, New York City was going through a crack epidemic, and you were on the board of a drug treatment and youth program. Um, I assume, Cal, at that time you were writing or working? No, I was uh, construction managing. Okay, okay, all right. It was around that time that you two decided to take in foster children. Yeah. I think this is an amazing part of your life story. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it was a, we were on 82nd Street um, uh, in Amsterdam Avenue. Sometimes on the weekends, there was nobody around, just us, and everybody took off. Um, I remember, except for the community of color, to be honest with you. I love the city when everybody takes off. I know, but there, there was crackheads. Mm. There were crackheads everywhere. And um, parents were dying. So there was a family near, uh, Super's family. They, he had 17 children. And they were all distributed around. Um, and he had a friend who had a kid who, um, the mother was a real crackhead. And so uh, this guy, Irwin, who was, lived across the street, um, he one day said, uh, nobody can, Wayne, nobody can take him. Can you take him? So I said, sure. You know, in comes the garbage bags with the clothes. And his mother was a mess. His sister was doing tricks. And so I thought, and then we just, and then went, everyone took one of the McKennas. I took Tyrone. How old was he? Oh. Probably 11 or 12. They're all 11 or 12 at that point. And this was done informally? Informally, except um, then the hospital, um, St. Luke's, at the psych ward, people were dropping kids off there, not picking them up. And so the, I happened to know the psychiatrist there. So she called me up, can you take some of those kids? So then it started with the Bureau of Child Welfare. They came around, and so he was legal. And then I was also on the board of this Andrew Glover program. And everybody there, as parents, was a drug, had a drug problem. And so I took those kids. Those were also official foster care. Wow. And so, you know, you learn a lot. So by the time, and then, you, then everybody else stops dropping off all their other kids. So how, many, how many foster kids did you have at any particular time? You probably couldn't do more than three, you right. know, but different times. And how big was your apartment? It was one of those old railroad flats. Yeah. So it had three or four bedrooms. You know, it wasn't, it was, it was on the first floor and lots of cockroaches and... It was a pretty bad landlord. So, but you learn a lot. And um, the McKenna's, where there were 17, they everybody had one, and they all took care of us. So we, even when people shot, you know, guns through the window or something, um, everybody else would. That was. I felt sorry for the person who shot the gun through the window. So. Amazing, <laughs> amazing. Can, can, uh, do you stay in touch with the? Uh... Pretty much, we all obviously all the McKennas. Um, Wayne died. Um, Michael's in California, so you are you do do keep in touch. Yeah. Are they doing all right generally? D- uh, depends. Curtis, not so good. It's a mixture, I would say. Yeah. yeah do yeah. they come to you, both of you, for um, advice or? Uh, the McKennas do. Curtis, sometimes they need bail money, so yes, they come for that. Rent money or just checking in there some of us are very close yeah depends right, right. checking on birthdays and holidays yes amazing um and your son Mo Sambundu yes Am I Mo Sambundu yes Mo Sambundu uh, he works for a state agency developing business opportunities in western New York can you tell us about him you want to talk about Mo tell us about Mo he's our adopted an adopted son Wait, how old was he when you adopted him He's probably 16, something like that. Okay. 16 or 17. Yeah. Yeah. Well, most of the star that fell from the sky. Wow. He came to us with a really, really serendipitous uh, way. He was attending uh, high school in the Bronx, 
where he had been living since he was nine. Uh, his parents had brought him there and left him and gone back to Africa. Uh, and he'd been living... And they with, just left him? They left him with the cousins. Oh, okay. And his uh, high school guidance counselor suggested that he apply to a not-for-profit that provided financial assistance to inner-city kids to, to help them go to, go to, go to college. The interview uh, for the program was at Goddard Riverside on Columbus Avenue. And Gail's office, uh, her consul office, is just down the block uh, uh, Columbus at 87th Street. So Mo, after the interview, he walked down Columbus Avenue. He block later, he ran into uh, Gail's office. He just has a wonderful instinct. And he was already working at the public library. He had a couple of other jobs. And, and he was only 16. Yes. Yeah, wow. he was, yeah, 16. Wow. He noticed Gail's office, and he just went right in. This is what he does. Uh, he's a, he just goes right at whatever, whatever it is that he's interested in. Uh, and in the office was uh, uh, one of Gail's staff members had worked in West Africa in the Peace Corps, and he recognized Muhammad immediately, knew that what, Muhammad was a West African. He just understood where he had been, where he clearly was coming from, and asked him if he wanted to uh, volunteer. Within a, f a few months, uh, he was in charge of the volunteers. So um, he, yeah, so he, and, he moved in with us yeah, soon thereafter. Yeah. He moved in with us soon, soon and um, he went to Buffalo State undergrad and got, got his master's there. But during that time period, he became, he was on the SUNY uh, Board of Directors as a student. He was head of all the student activities. He worked for the president, the mayor. He had, when he was here, he would get jobs um, over at Chelsea Piers, uh, parking cars. And to this day, I can get a, if I ever have a car over there, I get a free space. Very nice. <laughs> because of your son's yes. influence. Wow. And, uh, he, he, we go to a lot of conferences together, you know, uh, SOMOS in Puerto Rico, Black Puerto Rican and Asian. He knows more people um, than I do. Do you think he might go into politics? I don't know, he might. He's head of the Western New York office for the uh, governor. I mean, he has hundreds of people under him, and he's just got to be on the SUNY Board of Directors, Board of Trustees. Really? He's on the SUNY Board? Oh, well, very you interesting. Know. He's, a, he's a superstar. He, he's literally a superstar, by, not just by my, but now, you know, we're, I'm mom's, I'm not Gail Brewer. Uh, you know, the governor says, here comes Mo's uh, mom. It sounds like we should be talking to him. Yes. No, he's a superstar. He's a did, you, superstar. Uh, did you adopt any other children? Michael is in California. Okay. So you've lived on the Upper West Side for many years. How did you decide to settle here? Um, I think it was it was definitely going. I went to Columbia, so it's you know sort of a natural. And I, you know, no reason more than I just love this neighborhood. I, my grandparents are from the city, so it's not like I don't know this city. And my parents grew up here. And how would you describe this area to someone from out of town? Two parks, two subway lines, um, the most active community in the country, if not the world. Highest voting in the United States of America. Really? really? I didn't know that. Oh, good for you. Highest oh, yeah. readership <laughs> of the New York Times in the United States of America. And, you know, just a very involved, beautiful community. If you could live in another part of the world, where would that be? Uh, nowhere. Nowhere. No, I don't have any. I kind of think. I, well, I have no place else way. to go. I, I'm, I love this neighborhood, every inch of it. Of all the issues that you've worked on in your career, and there are many, what one win 
stands out as something that you're really proud of and that you'd want to crow about? Well, paid sick days. In fact, today I was um, at City Hall with a press conference with the mayor, with the deliveristas who are getting an increase in their pay, the delivery people. And a couple of them came up to me knowing that in uh, late, late, I think it was 2013-ish, 2012, we passed paid sick days. And that meant that every New Yorker who doesn't have a union contract, because they all have paid sick days under the union contract, but everybody else gets five days uh, paid if you or your family member is ill. Now, thank goodness we had it because pandemic soon came thereafter. The biggest loss of your career? Well, it could be this church, the West Park Presbyterian Church. You really think we're going to lose that? I don't know. I landmarked it in 2010. And And this is a church on 86th and Amsterdam, Yes, and the the long story short is the Presbytery and a developer want to tear it down and build condominiums. It's a sin. It is a sin, and I I hope it doesn't happen. I'm doing everything we can. We had a press conference yesterday with celebrities. I spoke to the mayor about it this morning, and we're hoping that we win. I know the Hulk was there. The Hulk was there, so was Amy Schumer. Right, right. Well, you have, that's not a loss yet. I know, but it's, it's a, the fact that it's even being discussed at the Landmarks Preservation Commission is right. outrageous. You, you are a name in this community. People know you. They know the work that you've done. How does it feel to walk around being a celebrity up on the Upper West Side? Well, I hate to taste not just the Upper West Side because I was a Manhattan Borough President. You were. And you so absolutely were. Whether it's in Harlem, Lower East Side, people know me. It's, it's a... It's positive, and I appreciate it, but I'm also aware that whatever I say, um, I have to be careful because I have to be honest, and people are going to listen. And I'm probably the most you know, uh, knowledgeable at City Hall right now, in the city council and the mayor. So you have to, but it's hard to get something done in this city, so I hope I can. Right, right. You, I mean, though, though people love you, and they respect you, and they look to you for leadership, there are those who don't, and you get a lot of... Um, I'll use a nice word, negativity. I do. How do you handle that? Well, the the negativity comes from two things. One, we have um, landlords who don't want, uh, you know, the 2019 rent stabilization law, or they don't want uh, anything that's going to curb their ability to rent at the highest market rate. Um, So those are, and then there are people who feel that we don't do enough on e-bikes, for instance, although we're certainly trying, and we want people to follow the rules of the road. And then people right now are upset with managed care for the seniors. So, and then you just have people who are upset about government, and there are a lot of them. So the way you handle them is I try to discuss what their issue is and try to be as responsive as possible to constituent issues. Listen, listen to them. Yes, yeah, I do. I mean, it's hard sometimes to solve their problems, but we try. Right, right. All right, quick, quick, we have to get to these. These these are are good ones. These are a few softball questions. So... You have a busy schedule. How do you? What do you do on your downtime? How do you find downtime? Yeah, besides reading the New York Times and. Uh, I don't really do downtime, to be honest with you. Is that true, Cal? No downtime for, for no Gail. No downtime. <laughs> I, 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 you know, Gail's the most amazing worker I, I've I've ever known. I've okay, known. all right, go ahead. We have to uh, okay. get started. Do you have any? Did you play any sports? Have any hobbies? I mean, I don't know about hobbies, um, reading, gardening. bicycling, gardening. We try to. Do Why is you're a bicycler? I do like to bicycle. All right. Um, I can't say I have a lot of hobbies, and I can't say I played bad lacrosse, bad softball, bad 
whatever else you can think of. Me too, me too. So favorite streaming TV series? Errol Lewis, New York One. That's it. I don't know anything else. <laughs> I would call that streaming TV series, but okay, all right, all right. I don't even know the other ones. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, what, oh, yeah, you do. Uh, who, Which who? one? You don't know it either. That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, best film of all time. Best film of all time. Um, I don't know. I love the documentaries. I don't know. I don't know. I hardly even go to the movies anymore. Manchester by the Sea. I don't know. Okay. Do do this. Do this one real quick. Okay. At an, at an Upper West Side restaurant, you and Cal like to go to regularly. Gennaro's. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah great. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Good great. Italian. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Favorite part of either Riverside or Central Park? Oh, I love them both. I mean, it's hard. I, I do go to Riverside a lot. Uh, soldiers and Sailors, we just got $63 million. Yay! I know, yeah. we heard and about that. And that's a big deal. So that's I'm so great. proud of that. Well, yeah. We had Cal Snyder on our show talking about the right. um, Soldiers yeah. and Sailors. And we know you love, we, you know, you, you love the lawn bowling green. Yes, Central I Park do. lawn bowling but green. I'm not doing very well in getting it fixed up. The Central well, Park Conservancy we'll, is not interested. They're hard. We'll keep, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep working for we'll it. Keep working it. Giving us a hard time. Um, yeah. I think that's well, one last question. I have okay. one last question. Um, you're 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 going to be reelected. I mean, there's this, this election coming up, but it's a silly election. Um, do you plan on keep going after this term is over? I'd like to. I mean, it's uh, two more years after this year, and then uh, four more if I get reelected. So we'll see how it goes. Okay. All right. Well, great, good luck. Great. Thank great. you so much. Thank you. It's such Thank an honor. You. Yeah, we want to thank you, Gail Brewer, New York City Council member of the Upper West Side, for visiting Barcore Radio, and Cal Snyder. And thank you, uh, Gail, for all the work that you're doing for us. We, we certainly appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. I love this podcast. Thank you. So, Alan, I think we can call this mission accomplished. Somewhat. We now know a bit more about our Upper West Side City Council member and former Manhattan Borough President, Gail Brewer. And thank you to Gail's husband, Cal Snyder, for helping us learn more about our tireless Upper West Side leader. Bar Crawl Radio usually records from a local Upper West Side pub, but today we are at the West Side Community Garden and we are getting to listen to a concert by the music duo Brooklyn Cumana with Jorge Glem on the Venezuelan Cuatro and Sam Ryder on the accordion. Jorge Glem is a Latin Grammy-winning master player of the Cuatro and undoubtedly a Venezuelan treasure. The cuatro is a four-string instrument, many times shaped like a small guitar, used in traditional Venezuelan music. Mr. Glem was raised in Cumana and lives in New York City. He has shared the stage with Paquito de Rivera, Ruben Blades, Gabi Morena, Guaco, many others. And Jorge recently played at Carnegie Hall with John Batiste. Sam Ryder is a pianist, accordionist, composer, and educator from San Francisco. His work brings together various streams of American music, from jazz and folk tunes to popular song and contemporary composition. He has appeared as a band leader and soloist at major festivals and venues around the world, and his performances and original compositions have been featured on NPR, PBS, 
and the BBC. This evening's performance features the music from Sam's and George's newest album, Brooklyn Kumana. A few days after the concert here at the Westside Community Garden, we caught up with the duo on Zoom as they traveled on Metro North to a concert at Yale. We talked about their musical collaboration. So, so how did you two meet? We uh, met in 2016 at a house party on the Upper West Side. I was invited by a friend. He knew that I loved folk music. He said, well, you got to come to this party and meet this guy, Jorge. It's going to be amazing. And Jorge was there playing with a bunch of people. And um, we sort of hit it off. We started to hang out after that and teach each other about our respective styles of music. Were your parents musical? Yeah, my uh, dad was, um, was a, a professional composer and pianist uh, for many years. He no longer is, but um, when I was growing up, he was a composer every night. He would sit at the piano and write music while I was going to sleep. What kind of music did he uh, write? Uh, musical theater. Oh, wonderful. We asked Jorge if his family was musical, but our Zoom connection with the Metro North was not really that good. Jorge told us that his parents were not professional, but that music was a part of the family gatherings all his life. Rebecca then blurted out that I played the accordion as a young person, which I did quite badly. But uh, it gave Sam a chance to talk about the history of the accordion in American and world music That's production. That's a big conversation, and I'm not really a, a proselytizer for the instrument. Ah. Um, I think that that conversation is not, uh, I don't know, it's just kind of, it feels kind of like a moot point yeah. in, the 20, in, in 2023 when really like anyone that's playing any acoustic instrument is sort of like a dinosaur at this point. There was a time in the United States in the 1950s before Jimi Hendrix when the accordion was the most popular instrument that was played by people. The electric guitar really changed that when folks you know of your generation decided they wanted to distance themselves from perhaps their ethnic heritage a little bit participate in the assimilated popular culture of rock and roll that's the story that i've i kind of um feel like makes the most sense with the accordion whether or not the accordion is like a popular instrument here today or why is less important to me than the fact that everywhere else in the world it remains one of the most popular instruments if you travel anywhere in Latin America or Europe, Africa, the Middle East, Asia, you find this instrument and it is front and center in, you know, top 40 pop bands. So the, I wanted to also um, uh, ask you, Sam, about this combination of the quattro and the accordion. Is that a normal uh, combo or is that something you two came up with, you and, you and Jorge? As far as I know, it is not a normal combination. The quattro is the national instrument of Venezuela. It's like the guitar here. When Jorge travels to Venezuela, he does these amazing master classes where he will literally uh, work with hundreds of students playing quattro all at the same time. It's like this instrument that you learn when you're a kid there. It's amazing. It's the primary instrument in a number of folkloric styles from Venezuela. Um, one of them being poropo, another is called merengue. Those are two of the four styles, the rhythms that we played in our concert. Um, as far as I know, there are a few examples of people playing types of accordion 
in Joropo, um, mostly the button accordion that is found in Colombian music, like in Vajinato and uh, Cumbia. Um, but I have yet to find another example of somebody playing the piano accordion, which is the one that I play um, in Venezuelan music. I'm sure it exists because um, Venezuela is like this incredible hotbed of amazing musical talent. What we're doing with these two instruments is fairly unique and perhaps not been done before too much. And certainly not between an American musician and a Venezuelan musician. Yep. I'll tell you, the sound is amazing and it was a huge crowd pleaser. I imagine you get that kind of reaction from many of your uh, concerts. Uh, the, That's good. That's great to hear. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like a, the sum of its parts kind of thing because the instruments on their own can be kind of wacky sounding, but it, do, it definitely feels like um, they complement each other really nicely because Jorge provides the rhythm, kind of this like high-pitched percussive sound and harmony with the quattro, and then I'm doing the bass and the melody with the accordion, so they sort of fill out each other's limitations. Right. Let, 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 let me take that question from a little different angle. Uh, you're both from very different cultures. You're from the Bay Area, you're Jewish, um, you're American. Jorge is quite different, Spanish. Uh, do, do, how do the two cultures mix? Can you talk about that? Um, well, I feel like that's kind of a work in progress. Um, but uh, I would say that one of our sort of uh, most important points of commonality is in humor. Jorge has a devilish sense of humor. In fact, he has an entire Instagram account devoted to jokes. He's even done shows with comedians in Venezuela. He's a really funny, charismatic guy. We've developed a really funny and fun way of communicating with each other through humor, even though we don't speak the same language. We both have an acceptance of or an interest in bridging the gap between our cultures this is something that was inculcated in me at, from an early age. My grandmother was a Jewish American artist, a jeweler and a sculptor and a painter. And she collected beads, thousands of beads from all around the world in her studio. So when I was a little kid, she would pick me up from school and I would spend the afternoon in her studio. And she would tell me stories about where all these beads came from. And it really was partly responsible for inspiring in me a love of exploring cultures of the world, the art, of, art from different parts of the world. Um, and that's something I've carried with me in my own musical practice. I really, really um, love to travel through music. And so I, I find it very exciting to work with people like Jorge, where I don't uh, understand always what's going on. And I have to really use my all of my senses, use my ears, um, really open my ears and my mind to try to, you know, feel my way through a musical experience. It's like when you go to a foreign country and you don't speak the language and you just try to figure things out. That's an artistic experience that I seek right. always. Right. It's when the best art is made, in my opinion. I then asked Sam to comment on the superhuman speed at which Jorge Glem's arms and hands moved when he attacks the quattro there's no way of really kind of like experiencing that unless you're at a live concert 
and seeing his hands move so fast you you cannot see them. Uh, yeah. they, they they become blurred in in the, in the human eye. Did he develop that? Is that a usual quattro player thing? Uh, is he the fastest in the world? I mean, it's definitely an instrument that's played with a lot of speed. Um, that's part of the style. It's played with nails on the strings. Um, the technique is similar to, in many ways, to flamenco. I think Jorge is particularly unique in the way that he approaches the instrument with a, with a high degree of rhythmic freedom and virtuosity. I think you'll talk to other Venezuelans, other Venezuelan musicians. When I ask them about Jorge, they, they tell me that he is unique in his ability to improvise rhythmically on the instrument and also melodically. He plays melodies with his thumbnail sometimes, and he also can play melodies where the melody itself is voiced at the top of the chord. And rhythmically, he has a way of um, taking a single beat a quarter note and subdividing into up as many as 13, 14, 15 subdivisions of the single beat. And he can do this effortlessly, shifting between these different um, rhythmic subdivisions of the beat. It's similar to things that happen with, with drums and jazz, um, but it just has this it kind of like unbelievable freedom with the rhythm that uh, it's astounding. that analysis um clearly my ears weren't able to pick that up and it must make it difficult or a special challenge for you to play with him exactly i assume that the that what you played at the garden was similar to what's on the record it is it's exactly the same yeah how did you choose those selections to be on the record it's a very organic process it's not like we were selecting from a a much larger repertoire to pick the pieces we we recorded the only pieces that we play, as well as we wrote music for the record. It's a, it's a slow process. Let's talk a bit about the pieces that you did play. Del Boca Vista, which is a piece that you wrote. Uh, tell us about that. And um, I think Del Boca Vista means the beauty of the mouth or something. It's not. It's nonsensical. It's the uh, name of the retirement home in Seinfeld. Uh-huh. Of the Jerry Seinfeld show, the series. Actually, the bass player in my other band names that piece. He's a big Seinfeld fan. Jorge composed a Malagena and he also composed lyrics that talk about missing his home in Venezuela. He comes from a, a seaside town, a coastal town, that's Gumana. There was music traditionally played by fishermen in the town, many different types of music. And um, 
there's celebratory music and that the fishermen sing when they are returning to port. Um, and those celebration songs would be the more up-tempo horopos that are sort of fun, they're dance music. And then there's these songs like the Malagueña that are more sort of wistful or nostalgic in quality that would have been sung um, about when the fishermen were leaving to go out to sea, perhaps not knowing if they would return home. And so Jorge took this metaphor and applied it to his Malagueña, comparing his own journey to the United States as uh, one of like one of these fishermen's journey out to sea, not knowing when he would be able to return home. And in fact, he uh, didn't return home for seven years. Um, he was unable to go home to see his family. That I was not able to go back home to Venezuela and see my parents due to the political situation in my country. But today I can share with you the joy of knowing that dreams do come true and that just a few months ago, I was finally able to go back to my Kumana and heal my parents. This happened, this happened three years after I composed this song. So here's Malagueña Kumana Many of the pieces that you played, or a couple, were Joropos. Yeah, I think it's it's one of the most important um, folkloric styles in the country. It's a dance music, um, and it's there's many different sub-styles of it all throughout. But Jorge will talk about the Joropo from the east, and the Joropo from the west, and the Joropo from the mountains, and the Joropo from the plains, and the Joropo from the Caribbean. It's, it's similar to the sort of fiddle music of the United States in that way. Can you talk about the combination of a piece that you played, uh, Homer the Romer and Sabana Blanca, about the history of that song? Yeah, I'll do as much as I can. It's written, um, that's a mashup of uh, American song and a Venezuelan song. And the American song is a composed fiddle tune by the um, banjo player and fiddler John Hartford, um, who was one of the most prolific um, composers of all time music, you know, a, a really important force in American folk music in the 20th century. It's a song that um, it, it sounds Celtic. It sounds like Irish music. Um, and it, it is not an Irish song. It's an American tune written by Hartford. And we bring this sort of unusual flavor to it. The second tune is a, hor- is a horobo entitled Sabana Blanca. And we, why, the reason we put them together is very simple, that they're both in the key of D. <laughs> Finally, I asked Sam about the cultural expansiveness, the variety of the forms 
of his music. I see the history of all American music as being the history of mixing, conglomeration, appropriation, exploitation, musical miscegenation. If you look at any of the popular music styles of the United States, you see the various contributions of people from all over the world. Sometimes those contributions are given ample airtime. It's widely known that American bluegrass um, stems from Irish and Celtic music. It's becoming better known that, in fact, it also largely stems from African traditions, whether that's the West African instrument that resembles the banjo or the blues scales that were brought from Middle Eastern countries through East Africa and the Pan-African slave trade, or whether it's harmony singing or the blues form or the syncopated bowing patterns that resemble Caribbean rhythms. When I work with a musician from another place, I just feel like I'm participating in the very American tradition of communication. It, it is magical, but it's nothing extraordinary. It's the same thing that musicians have been doing forever, whether they were in Europe or in Africa or the Middle East or in Latin America. And one of my missions is kind of to mystify that process, uh, introduce audiences to the idea that culture is this ongoing tapestry and that I really detest the idea of authenticity, purity, um, and I do my very best to sort of muddy that up because I think that those are the concepts that lead to white supremacy and fascism and single things that allowed World War II and Holocaust to happen. These are the ideas that are so insidious, repressive regimes around the world. And, and you find it right here in the United States. And so maybe that's partly because of my own Jewish heritage. To be Jewish in America is to really inhabit many different cultural spheres at the same time and to draw on many different influences. For me, working with Jorge is just part of that practice of exploration and just trying to create something that is somewhat new and authentic to ourselves, not necessarily authentic in the sense of um, being a, an authentic representation of a tradition. We like to put new. We like to put traditions into the service of originality. Have, have, have a great concert out there on uh, Long Island. Thanks, Al. Thank All you right. guys. Have a good trip. Be safe. All right. Have a good one. Right Bye. on. Bye bye.